You're gonna go ahead and make your way back to your seat. Well, once again, welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. It's good to gather with you on this Advent Sunday and looking forward to continuing to walk through Luke chapters one and two. So would you listen to the reading of God's word, our sermon text this morning, as Kat reads our scripture. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by his mouth of his holy prophets from I'm sorry as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. Um, let's pray. God of mercy and God of grace, we praise you this morning. You are God and you are good. You're faithful in all that you do. And God, I pray that you would help us now by your spirit to see your faithfulness on display and to respond in worship in all of our life. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. You know, as crazy as it is sometimes around here in Northern Virginia, I really love living in this place. I wasn't born here, but my family moved here when I was just about four years old. So I've spent most of my life here in Northern Virginia. And one of the reasons that I love living here is because most of the time we get to actually experience all four seasons of the year. I love summer, I love fall, the warmth that we get to have and be outside rolling your windows down or just being in God's creation. I also love the fact that the sun is out longer, that we get to experience more daylight through those seasons. But winter, that's a different story. In the winter, we see days with the least amount of sunlight and the most amount of darkness. In fact, this Wednesday is the winter solstice, the 24-hour period where there is the least amount of sunlight and the most amount of darkness all year. 
Now, I know some of you feel me on this. If you have to, one of those people that still has to actually go into their office building and you get there early and it's still dark outside when you get there, you don't sit near a window, you don't go out for lunch. By the time you leave, it's also dark outside. And so for the better part of five days, all you really see is darkness. Most of us enjoy the sun and the light that it brings. In light, we see the forms and shapes of different things, the colors of creation, but in darkness, those things are distorted and suppressed. Now, while darkness and light are real things, they're also metaphors in scripture. Metaphors that point to things like brokenness and death or peace and life. Well, today we're continuing in our Advent series in Luke 1 and 2 called Light in the Darkness. And as we've said, the word Advent means arrival or coming. But Advent's also a time of waiting and anticipation. During this season, we have the opportunity to think on and remember that God's people, the people of Israel, had been waiting and anticipating the arrival of the promised Messiah, that this rescuer who would bring redemption and restoration, who would bring them out of darkness. And the reality is, whether you call yourself a follower of Christ or not, I think all of us can acknowledge and realize that darkness still exists. We go out into the world, we turn on the news just in our own life, the difficulties that we encounter. But the Advent season and this time of Advent reminds us that we are not without hope, that we too are waiting and anticipating what is to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a writer in the mid-20th century, said, our entire life is Advent, a time of waiting for a new heaven and a new earth to see peace on earth and goodwill among people. You and I are waiting for the return of our risen and rescuing king who will come and make all things new. And so as we get closer and closer to Christmas Day, the anticipation in the story that we've been in, in Luke 1 and 2, is building. It's increasing as well. And today, this Sunday before Christmas, we see that a promised birth, a promised birth points to the promised birth, which will bring light to those who sit in darkness. So I want to invite you to enter into this story this morning. Again, as we've walked through this series, my guess is a lot of us are familiar with all that's happening in here. And if that's you, I want to just invite you to just actually sit in this and, and listen. And if you're unfamiliar with this, I want you to also just to slow down and listen to what God's word has to say to us today so that we might experience the light and the hope that it brings, hope that will lead you in the way of peace. So let's look at Luke chapter one and may God bless the preaching of his word. At the beginning of Luke one, we're getting towards the end of it here. It's a lot of verses Luke packs into this first chapter here. In the beginning of Luke one, we see the pre-announcement of the promised Messiah. There's been some 400 years of silence without a word from the Lord through one of his prophets. And God's people have been longing and waiting for something to change, to hear from God. And in the moment that we see at the beginning of Luke 1, an angel comes to Zechariah, an ordinary man, a, a common priest serving God's people, and he tells him something. He tells him not only is he going to have a son, but this son will be a messenger of God. He'll be the voice in the wilderness, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord and a people for the Lord. But as we saw, Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel the angel. Before his unbelief, and to give him a sign that he wanted, the angel who broke the silence makes Zechariah silent until his son would be born and his name given. Now, lots happened since then. 
We see that Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, does in fact become pregnant. Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, a young woman, also is told that something miraculous is going to happen in her life, that she's going to have a child. It's not just going to be any child, though. He will be called the Son of God. Mary also becomes pregnant as a virgin by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we saw Mary go to visit Elizabeth and her response of worship to what God has been doing, has been doing. As we get into our text today, we're back to a scene with Zechariah. But while Zechariah is the one who speaks the most in this text, it's not Zechariah who is the focus. The first thing we see take place in our first point today is a promised birth. After Mary's visit with Elizabeth, Luke tells us in verse 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. When Mary arrived in Elizabeth and Zechariah's home, Elizabeth was about six months pregnant. And so at this point in time, what's happening is she's stayed there for about three months, bringing us to the nine-month mark, which is about the time for Elizabeth to give birth, which is exactly what we see happen. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. This is a piece of information Luke is sharing with us, but it's not a throwaway phrase. Like, let's stop for a minute and think about what's actually happening here. This woman who's been barren her whole life, who's longed for a child, and her husband who's longed for a child, he's here. He's actually come into this world. He's born. This is hugely significant for this couple, but also for those around them. We know it's a big deal because we see verse 58 that everyone seems to know about this birth, not because Zachariah and Elizabeth posted it on social media. There was no gender reveal party where they found out what, was going to, what they were going to have, a boy or a girl. No, they've been testifying to this reality that this son would be born, that he would come into this world by the mercy and providence of God. And her neighbors rejoice with her. Luke then tells us that they go to the temple and things start to get a little more interesting. Look at verses 59 through 62. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. According to the law, a son was to be brought into the temple eight days after his birth to be circumcised, to be set apart as the firstborn in the family, to be set apart as part of the covenant family. And at that time, he was officially given his name. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah, who at this point is still unable to speak, go into the temple in faithful obedience. They're seeking to be obedient to God and his law. Now, normally they would have named the firstborn after the father or a family member. And we still see this happen today, right? Like oftentimes the firstborn is given the same name as their father or some variation of that name. Or sometimes we use a family name in our children's names. All of my kids have some family name in their middle name, except my youngest, Luke. We ran out of names to use for him. But his name means, Luke means light giving. His middle name is Nathaniel. It means God has given. There's meaning to the names we give to each other, to our kids. It's a huge thing to name somebody. If you've ever been in that position before, think, I'm giving this person a name. They're going to have that for the rest of their life. Here, this is a big deal for them to name this child. But what the people expected and anticipated isn't what actually happens. Elizabeth doesn't name him Zechariah. Zechariah can't even speak at this point. She says his name will be John. His name will be John. 
Everyone's shocked. Wait, John? Who, who in the world is John? Where did that name come from? Did you look it up on like top 100 baby names? Because you don't have anybody in your family named that. It's not the father's name. Where did this name come from? What does Zechariah think about this? Now, at this point, it seems like Zechariah not only is unable to speak, but also unable to hear because they have to make some kind of motion to get his attention. I don't know what he's doing at that moment, but he's not paying attention to what's going on, it seems like. So they're trying to get his, his attention to ask him, well, who, who do you actually want to name? Or what do you want to actually name this child? There must be a mistake. Let's see what happens in verses 63 and six, through 66. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Zechariah, a man who the last time he spoke an audible word was nine months ago to an angel. Hasn't talked for nine months. Takes a writing tablet, writes clearly on there, his name is John. Now there's more significance to this name that we'll see in a moment, but right now we have to take note of something. This is a demonstration of faith in the faithfulness of God. They didn't come up with the name John on their own. Gabriel said, this will be the name of this child. So for Zechariah to take that and actually do that as a demonstration that they've trusted in God. And in that moment, God removes the long means of discipline that he had given Zechariah and immediately he's able to speak and immediately he begins by praising God. The people are astonished. They're perplexed at all that's happening. The text says fear came over them, not because they're terrified as if they've seen a ghost, because they realize God is at work. God is up to something. And so they ask this question, what then will this child be? A question is asked and the response is given, but it's not just any response. What we see in this next section is a prophetic response to the birth of a promised child. Look at verse 67. It says, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That wasn't common at this point in the history of God's people for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit to take up residence within someone. But in this moment, the Holy Spirit fills Zechariah, which means that what comes next out of his now, mouth through this prophecy is not a moment of creativity on Zechariah's part. No, this is from the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's speaking a prophetic word that comes in the form of a song or a poem. And like most prophetic words we see in the Old Testament, it's meant to point to something. It's meant to point to someone, which is exactly what it does. But what we might expect is for all, uh, for all of this to be about this promised son that's just been born, right? The people ask this question, what then will this child be? And so Zechariah answers them. He gives them a response. That. So we might expect, well, he's gonna talk a lot about this promised son, this promised child. It's a proud father speaking of this unexpected but longed for baby. But that's not the focus of Zechariah's response. See, what Zechariah says goes far beyond the question that's asked. We come back to the meaning of the name John. John means Yahweh is merciful or God is merciful. 
And that's exactly what Zechariah testifies to in his response. Now, in the Greek text, in most of our English Bibles, this is a long run-on sentence. Like, English teachers would be like, what are you doing? I think Zechariah is amped up, right? I mean, he hasn't talked in nine months. He's got some things to say. So let's take a look at this. This prophetic response really has three parts to it. The first two seek to amplify and underline the last part. So let's let's look at each one. John begins not with prophecy or praise for his son, but for his God. Look at verse 68 through the beginning of verse 73. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What's going on here? He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That means God is praiseworthy. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. Why? Well, he's telling us why he's worthy of our worship. He says he has visited and redeemed his people. Redemption is about release. Release from captivity, release from slavery, release from oppression, from sin, from death. God has done this, Zechariah says, not from a distance. No, he has visited us. He's come to us. So foreshadowing of what is to come, who is to come. He says he's redeemed his people by raising up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Now this may sound a little bit strange, but it isn't flowery language that Zechariah is using here. None of what he says is. No, Zechariah is drawing from the Old Testament. He's speaking the language of the prophets and the promises that have been made. He's helping us to see something here, that all of the Bible, all of God's word has been moving toward the culmination of this promised redemption. That all of God's word, all these promises have been moving toward this promised redeemer. Luke is helping his readers to see this. He's helping us to see this. See, a horn of salvation from the house of David is referring to the Messiah promised long ago through the prophets. This king who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever, the redeemer and rescuer God's people had been longing and looking for. He's saying, he's visited us, he's come. But that isn't the only part of the promise from long ago that Zechariah praises God for keeping In verses 72 and 73, he says God is fulfilling the covenant promise he made to Abraham. He's going all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God approach this man who would become Abraham. Currently in that moment, his name is Abram, and he calls him out of the land of Ur, a place where he's not seeking after God, knows nothing about him. He calls him to follow him, and he makes a promise to him. He says, I'll make you the father of nations, and through you, through you, will all the nations be blessed. Zechariah is saying that's coming to fruition now. All these promises are coming into play, coming to be now. Zechariah is overjoyed at his son. His son, whose name means God is merciful. And so what does he do? He exalts the God who is merciful. The God who is faithful to fulfill all his plans and all of his promises. And it's all for the benefit of his people. In verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. 
what seems to be mostly in view here is social and political deliverance from literal oppressors, which God's people throughout their history have experienced a lot of. That's part of what Zechariah is referring to and has in mind, but it's not all, as we'll see in a moment. First, we need to understand that this promised redemption that Zechariah is praising God for isn't merely independence or freedom to do whatever you want. It isn't redemption for redemption's sake. No, this is being redeemed to something, and more specifically to someone. Look at the rest of verse 73 through 75. He testifies to God's faithfulness to his mercy. Why? To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Just as God redeemed his people out of Egypt to be able to worship him, so he has come to redeem his people again so they might worship him. They might follow him as king. They might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. For how long? Some of the time? Most of the time? No, he says, for all their days. All their days. Now, before we move on to the next part of this prophetic response, I think there's something for us to learn in this as well. Not only can we, like Zechariah, rejoice and exalt the merciful God who is faithful, faithful to all his plans and all his promises, we too can recognize that the redemption that God has given us is for the same reason. We see in verses 73 through 75 that we would be able to serve him and worship him and to do so without fear and holiness and righteousness all the days of our life for the entirety of our life. In other words, so that we too can live before him and for him. So let me ask you, is that how you think about your life? Not just on Sundays, not just when you go to community group, but all of life, the mundane and the exciting that we're living life before God to worship him without fear and in righteousness. You know, the amazing thing is that just as Zechariah was filled with the spirit here, if you have placed your hope and your faith in Jesus, your redeemer, our redeemer, then you too are filled with the Holy Spirit, the same spirit, the one who empowers you and encourages you to live this way for your good and for God's glory. Now, the people asked a question, what will this child be? In response to the promised birth of his son, Zechariah begins by exalting God, the one who made it happen. Now, in the second part, he turns to speak about his son specifically. Look at verses 76 through 77. He says, and you, child, talking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah affirms what's already been told to him by Gabriel the angel. John will be a prophet. He'll prepare a way of the Lord for and prepare a people for the Lord. But here we get some additional information. John will not only be an ambassador for the coming Lord, he'll also be an evangelist, a proclaimer of good news. He'll give knowledge of salvation. Now, is this political salvation? Like we're looking back again, is this about being delivered from the enemies that he spoke of earlier? No, because the reality is our greatest enemy in this life is sin and death. The people of Israel have been oppressed politically by foreign leaders, but the people of Israel have also been oppressed by their own sinfulness and rebellion. They're enslaved to it. 
Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 8, verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're captive to it. This control over your life, it taints everything that you think, say, and do. And in Romans chapter 6, we see that because we're slaves to sin, the result of that is that it leads to death. See, Israel's greatest need isn't for a redeemer to set them free politically, but a redeemer to set them free from their sin. And the reality is all of us need that as well. We're born into this world in rebellion against God, captive and enslaved to our sin. We need someone to set us free from that. We can't do it on our own. And John will be the one to begin to preach this message to the people that slavery and death are not the end of the story. Salvation and forgiveness are possible. You can be set free. You can be made new. In response to the birth of his son, Zachariah spends little time actually talking about this son. Why? Because while John's birth is a promised birth, it isn't the promised birth. See, John will be an ambassador and an evangelist. He'll bring this message of salvation and the forgiveness of sin. But how is salvation possible? How is forgiveness possible? Let's look at the third and final part of his prophetic response. Verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This salvation, this forgiveness of sins is possible because of the tender mercy of our God. Not because you figure it out. Not because you get all the right answers. Not because you do more good things than bad things. It's because of, I love this, the tender mercy of our God. That's who our God is. He's testifying to that. Sinful, rebellious people deserve punishment. We deserve justice, not mercy, not grace, but our holy God is a God of mercy, as John's name testifies to. Our God is a God of grace, who's faithful to his plans and his people. He told Adam and Eve right after the rebellion that the evil and darkness and sin and death that had come into this world would not ultimately triumph. It would not win the day. But one would come who would crush those things forever and ever. And you know what? Throughout the scriptures over and over and over again, God promises this redeemer would come from his people and come for his people. Zechariah has just recounted part of that for us. But until that day, the people sit in darkness. They sit in darkness. I remember a few years ago, I went down to, it was either the Luray Caverns or the Endless Caverns. If you've ever been to any caverns, There's a lot of them in Virginia, right? It's really beautiful. You walk inside way underground and it's all this crazy stuff. Thinking about, wow, this is amazing that all this has happened out of sight. But oftentimes on these little tours, you go into one room and they turn off all the lights. And you literally can't see your hand in front of your face. There is zero, zero light in this place. Now it would be foolish in that moment for me to try and get out of there. I can't do it. I'd fall, I'd stumble, I'd crack my head open. There's no way for me to go because there's no light in the midst of the darkness. That's the reality of our life. When he talks about sitting in the shadow of death, there is no life in the midst of darkness. The consequence of our sin is death. So he's saying people are sitting in this kind of darkness. They're longing, they're looking for light to come. 
And they can long and look for that because light has been promised long ago. Remember Malachi 4.2 that we read earlier that for our Advent reading. Let me read it to us again. It says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's God's judgment over rebellion and sin. But check this out. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 400 years earlier, this promise is made. The people longed for it. And now Zechariah is saying, it's here. He knows it's imminent. The world sits in darkness, but the sunrise from on high is coming and it will bring healing, healing to all that sin has destroyed. It'll bring light that will bring life to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death because it will lead them in the way of peace. This is not just any peace. I think we often think of peace as just the absence of conflict, but this is the shalom of God. This is not just the absence of conflict. This is wholeness. This is completeness. It's full restoration and freedom. It's reconciliation with God. The way of peace is the way of life instead of the way of death. But the sunrise Zechariah is referring to, Malachi promised is not an amorphous, impersonal thing. He's talking about the very son of God who at this point is in the womb of a young girl named Mary and his name will be Jesus. John's name means Yahweh is merciful. God is merciful. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. He saves. John will proclaim this salvation, but Jesus will bring it about. Jesus will bring shalom because Jesus is the sunrise who has visited us from on high. Jesus is, a light, is the light who leads us in the way of peace. In John chapter one, verses four through five, speaking of Jesus, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And in John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is that sunrise on high who leads people out of the place of death, out of the place of darkness, into the way of peace. But he won't do this through military triumph. He won't do this through political power or persuasion. He will do this through sacrifice. For a broken and bleeding world, Jesus will break and bleed. For a world in the throes of darkness, Jesus will enter the darkness. For a world in the shadow of death, Jesus will die a death that we deserve for our sin. He will make peace by the blood of his cross. And because of who Jesus is and what Jesus will do, all who have faith in him will be set free from darkness, be set free from despair, be set free from sin and death. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 through 14, talking about God, says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We've been sitting in that cave, can't see our hands in front of our faces, don't know the way to go, don't know how to fix our problems, but he says he will transfer us from that kingdom, that domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, Zechariah is celebrating a promised birth because, because it points to the promised birth, which will bring light to those who sit in darkness. 
everything here is pointing to Jesus. He's going all the way back to Genesis and he's showing us that everything is pointing to Jesus and it's the greatest news ever. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited son of righteousness, the long-awaited light in the darkness and because of that, everything changes. So who is the sunrise for? The sunrise that visited us us from on high. Is it for a certain group of people? When I get up in the morning to see Owen off before he goes to school, especially at this time of year, it's barely light outside. The sunrise is beginning, but the sunrise is also local, right? Like when the sun is peeking over the horizon in Fairfax, at the exact same time, people who are in California are still in darkness. But this sunrise, this sunrise from on high is not a localized event. This is a global sunrise. That people from every tribe and every language and every nation who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And listen, it doesn't matter how deep that darkness is for you. It doesn't matter how much you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how much or little you know about God. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that Jesus came to save to the uttermost. That means that there's no limit or boundary to where the light of his glory and grace can reach. You guys know the movie Lion King, right? Where's my kingdom? How far is the kingdom? As far as the light touches. There's no place where the light of this sunrise doesn't touch. There's no place of darkness that it cannot go. It's a radiant, undimmable, unending light. No light bulb needs to be replaced. My, my front porch light, LED light, it finally broke and went out. I had to replace the whole thing because it didn't work anymore. This doesn't happen. There's no ending to this light, no diminishing of this light. It's good news for us, good news for all the world. Listen, our sin indeed is great, but his mercy is more. Our, our rebellion is massive, but his redemption is exhaustive. And our God alone can bring about this redemption. He's the remedy to our greatest problem. He's the overcomer of our greatest enemies of sin and death. Jesus himself said to us, I came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, he came for those who need light to see the way, the way out of darkness and death. Is that you this morning? Do you find yourself sitting in darkness right now? Listen, if you haven't turned away from your sin, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then you are still in darkness in the shadow of death. So come to the son of righteousness. Look to him for grace and forgiveness. God's people then lived in a dark world waiting for light. And the reality is for us today, even if we're followers of Jesus, we're looking forward to the return of our savior king because we live in a world where because of sin, darkness still exists. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, as we wait, we can be tempted to return to the darkness. To step back into that place of familiarity where we say, hello darkness, my old friend. Right, we wanna go back there. We know, I don't really know what I'm supposed to, let's just go back to that place. And we walk that way instead of the way of peace. But I wanna encourage you, I wanna exhort you, I want you to encourage me, I want you to exhort me not to go back there. I was thinking about this this week in my own life, that the way of peace, guide my feet in the way of peace. God, I need you to guide me in the way of peace. 
There's so many things going on in life, in the world, in my own family, that it just feels discouraging and overwhelming at times. What I need is light to guide me in the way of peace. So how do we do that? How can we help one another with that? Listen, I wouldn't normally recommend that anyone go outside and stare directly into the sun. It's not good for you. But in this case, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to set your gaze in the sun of righteousness, to stare at Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 to set our minds, set our gaze on things that are above, on Christ who is risen, the one who is risen not only with healing in his wings, but is risen from the grave, the one who one day will come again to make all things new. Set your gaze on this son of righteousness. See, because of this prophetic word and what follows, we can know that after darkness, there is light. No matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter what's going on in our world right now, we can know because of what happens here and what's going to happen in the rest of this story that after darkness, there is light and that can give us hope here and now. So hang on and keep looking to Jesus. In verse 80, Luke finishes this section by coming back to John. He says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John will grow and John will be great. But John is going to fade into the background. Because Jesus, the one he points to, will be greater. And Jesus will outshine in every way. Zechariah, by the leading of the Spirit, gets that. Everyone's excited. Everyone's astonished that John has been born. Zechariah is too. But he spends most of his time testifying to the most important thing that is happening and will happen. That indeed, this is a promised birth, but it's a promised birth that points to the promised birth, which will bring light to those in darkness. And I want us to respond to this news like Zechariah did, with joyful worship, praising God that he has visited us and redeemed his people. And now, just like Zechariah, just like John, we too can testify to this glorious son of righteousness. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, but in Matthew chapter five, he calls us the light of the world. That means that we can go now as those who've experienced his grace, as those who've been set free from darkness and death, and we can now shine the light of Christ. We can bring the message of this salvation to those who still sit in darkness. Everything changes because of Jesus. Zechariah knew that. John would come to know that. Do you know that? Do you believe that this morning? For what remains of this Advent season, let me invite you not to miss Jesus. This one year turns to another. Don't miss Christ. Look to him and find peace. Come into his light and walk in his ways. The sunrise has visited us from on high. He has given light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, and he has guided our feet into the way of peace. And one day, church, one day he will come again to bring it all to completion. And to that we say amen, come Lord Jesus. We're gonna take communion together now in the celebration of God's grace. So if you don't yet have the elements, you can grab those in the back if you're on the bottom floor or along the railing if you're up in the balcony. Jesus is the light of the world. 
And by his grace, he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to walk in the way of peace. And so as we partake of this meal together, we're reminded and refreshed in the reality of how that's possible. We eat the bread, a picture of Jesus's body broken and given for us. We drink the cup, a picture of Jesus's blood shed for us that we might be set free. Eating and drinking this does not save us, but it is a means of grace to encourage us. It's an act of faith for us to reorient our hearts and minds on the one who lived and died and rose again. And so as you eat and drink today, may you set your gaze once again on the son of righteousness and rest in his grace. And listen, if you're not a follower of Christ, we're so grateful that God's brought you to be here. I don't think you're here by accident. God in his providence saw fit for you to be here today. And so I want you, instead of eating and drinking today, that you would sit there and you would actually take Christ. Place your faith in him. Look to Jesus today. And if you have questions about what that means or what it looks like, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk and pray with you and so would many other people in this room this morning. For those of us that will eat and drink, let's take the bread now, a picture of Jesus's body broken for you and eat together to the praise of his name. Now let's take the cup, a picture of Jesus's blood shed for you and drink now together to the praise of his name. Let's pray. Oh, faithful God, we praise you for your restoring and reconciling and unending grace. God, thank you for leading us out of death and darkness into light and life, not because we figured it out on our own, but because you visited us from on high. God, we thank you that Christ has come and that he is our peace and through him we can have peace. And so God, I pray that you would help us, all of us, to set our gaze on the son of righteousness. Help us to walk in his good ways, knowing that it's for our good and for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.